Welcome to Bridal Love Ministries podcast with Poppy Hopeflish teaching on Song of Songs. Good evening everyone. Hope you are fine. We are at chapter 7, the passion of the bride when he comes with his anointing. In our previous teaching we saw the mature bride in chapter 6. The bridegroom's dream has been realized. He's looking for souls for his kingdom. She's also a dancing bride who's taking up a place of authority in God's heavenly army. And her friends, the daughters of Jerusalem, the church, have been watching this bride throughout her growth. They've come to the conclusion that she's very happy and very beautiful. And they give the watchman of the city an answer to the question they asked in chapter 6 verse 13 when they said, What do you see in the Shulamite? She only brings double trouble. Their answer to the watchman leaves no doubt about their intention to follow her example. So let's begin by listening to the text of chapter 7. How beautiful are your feet in sandals, O prince's daughter! The curves of your thighs are like jewels, the work of the hands of a skillful workman. Your navel is a rounded goblet which lacks no blended beverage. Your waist is a heap of wheat set about with lilies. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle. Your neck is like an ivory tower, your eyes like the pools in Heshbon by the gate of bath Your nose is like the tower of Lebanon, which looks toward Damascus. Your head crowns you like Mount Carmel, and the hair of your head is like purple. A king is held captive by its tresses. How fair and how pleasant you are, O love, with your delights! This stature of yours is like a palm tree, and your breasts like its clusters. I said, I will go up to the palm tree, I will take hold of its branches. Let now your breasts be like clusters of the vine, the fragrance of your breath like apples and the roof of your mouth like the best wine. The wine goes down smoothly for my beloved, moving gently the lips of sleepers. I am my beloved's, and his desire is toward me. Come, my beloved, let us go forth to the field, let us lodge in the villages, let us get up early to the vineyards, let us see if the vine has budded, whether the grape blossoms are open and the pomegranates are in bloom. There I will give you my love. The mandrakes give off a fragrance, and at our gates are pleasant fruits, all manner, new and old, which I have laid up for you, my beloved. The daughters of Jerusalem give a report of what they see in her, just as she told them what she saw in Jesus, her beloved. They tell the watchman, that her feet are beautiful in sandals. These shoes represent a readiness for the gospel of peace and the taking of new territory. Isaiah 52 verse 7 How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good tidings, who publishes peace, who brings good tidings of good and who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, Your God reigns. 
And in Joshua 1 verse 3, we read, Every place which the sole of your foot shall tread, that have I given to you, as I promised Moses. The same promise stands today for you. And see that it does not say, I will give it to you. He says that I have given to you. That means there's places waiting for you where your feet have to go and tread to spread the gospel. And Ephesians 6 verse 15. And having shot your feet in preparation for the gospel, of course, to face the enemy with the firm-footed stability and the promptness and the readiness produced by the good news of the gospel of peace. All of this they see in her feet. In Psalm 45 verse 13 we read, The royal daughter is all glorious within. This refers to the purity of her heart and her thoughts. They say her thighs are like jewels, the work of a skillful sculpture. They are strong, so that she will be able to stand in times of temptation and persecution. Yes, that's you, beloved. You are learning to stand and not be moved. In chapter 5, verse 15, Jesus' legs are described as pillars of marble, and she is becoming more like him, even in strength. Her feet and legs also represent her life in general and the places that she goes. Verse 2 Your navel is a rounded goblet which lacks no blended beverage, and your waist is a heap of wheat set about with lilies. The navel refers to the feeding of an unborn child, and it is symbolic of the bride's first season in the inner chamber. God has nurtured her and nourished her with good, wholesome food, and her foundation in Christ is deeply rooted. Her navel is in the form of a goblet, a reference to the new wine that she drinks regularly. The navel is also the seat of the spirit, the place where you sometimes feel a physical reaction of your spirit to a prophetic word spoken. It may feel like someone just hit you in the belly and you gasp or cry out from the impact of that word. They say her waist is like a great big sheaf of wheat. The word waist in Hebrew means uterus, referring to her innermost being where the wheat is stored in abundance. She is actually pregnant with a great harvest of souls. She is surrounded by lilies, the daughters who keep track of her inner life. This souls, by the way, we just spoke about that, the harvest of souls. The Lord said after Song of Songs, we must do the word that we did at the camp in November 29. Because we are nearing the end of the church age, which will be when the rapture takes place. So then you will hear that word. So many people asked me, what was the word at the harvest camp? And it fits in here. That's what he showed me. So it will be the same word, but from a new perspective, of course, because he already gave me some stuff to share on that. Then she's also surrounded by the, the lilies and the wine and the wheat. That is also a reference to the Holy Communion that she takes daily, 1 Corinthians 10, 16 and 17. It's the cup of blessing of wine at the Lord's Supper, upon which we ask God's blessing. Paul asks, does it not mean 
that in drinking it, we participate in and we share a fellowship, a communion in the blood of Christ the Messiah? And the bread which we break, does it not mean that in the eating of it, we participate in and we share a fellowship, a communion in the body of Christ? For we, no matter how numerous we are and how far apart we are, and although we can't do it together, we still are one body because we all partake of the one bread, the one whom the communion bread represents, Jesus. So I do hope you still take your communion and you must be saturated by now. Verse 3. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle. Her breasts represent the ability to feed others. They realize that she is ready to give birth to a great harvest and they rejoice in her ability to feed these new souls in Christ. She's like her El Shaddai, God the full-breasted one. Her breasts remain full because she keeps feeding and the more she feeds, the more she is refilled. In other words, the more you give, the more you get. The young daughters are dependent on her for their daily food and she remains dependent on him, her all-sufficient one. The same milk and manna that you receive today is often meant to be given out sooner than later, soon thereafter. The reference to her breasts as twins represents a double portion again. Do you remember? What double anointing do you carry? That of John the Baptist? To prepare the way of the coming king and that of Elijah. Blessing anointing and also uh, ability to feed others. This is in contrast with the little sister, the young immature believer in chapter 8 verse 8 who has not developed breasts yet. In verse 4 she says, Your neck is like an ivory tower, your eyes like the pools in Heshbon by the gate of Baftabim. Your nose is like the Tower of Lebanon, which looks towards Damascus. Her neck speaks of strength and man's free will. We can be stubborn or submit to the hand of God. Isaiah 3.16 The bride's passion for the will of God is something very rare and precious to the bridegroom. The daughters describe her eyes as clear, pure pools. This is also a reference to her eyes of faith, as we read in Ephesians 1.18, by having the eyes of your heart flooded with light, so that you can know and understand the hope to which he has called you, and how rich is his glorious inheritance in the saints, his set-apart ones. Oh, beloved, how many times have we heard this scripture now? Are your eyes of your heart flooded with light? Well, then you can know and understand the hope to which he has called you. What is that hope? The hope is that he will call you when he comes to rapture his bride. And what's the second thing you must know by now? How rich is Jesus' glorious inheritance? He is your inheritance, but he wants you to know how precious you are because you are his inheritance. You are set apart to be his inheritance. Her eyes are pools where fish can live, a source of blessing to others, because the love of the bridegroom shines in her gaze. 
and in her eyes the daughters can see the fishes swimming. That's the fishes that will be caught because the bride becomes a fisher of men. They say her nose is compared to the Tower of Lebanon. That's a reference to the discernment of spirits in spiritual warfare. By now she can smell deception and strange doctrines a long way off. That's why the daughters feel safe with her when a battle is raging in the spiritual realm. The bride knows that they must develop this discernment for themselves. So later she leaves them in the care of the bridegroom. Her assignment was just to prepare the way for them. John 1, 23 Verse 5 Your head crowns you like Mount Carmel, and the hair of your head is like purple. A king is held captive by its tresses. The daughters compare her head with Mount Carmel. Mount Carmel is the place of decision. That is where Elijah had the competition with the Baal prophets, and they both had to build an altar, and the fire must come down. The real God will bring fire. And they both had to pray. We read about this in 1 Kings 18.24 when Elijah said, Then you call on the name of your God and I will call on the name of the Lord. And the one who answers by fire, let him be God. And all the people answered, It is well spoken. And we all know by now that of course the God of Elijah answered with fire. You see, your head is actually Mount Carmel. It's the place where you make your decisions. Either you are God in your life, even though you love God and you serve Him, when it comes to decisions, you're still in charge, then you are still God in your life. Or God is God. It speaks of wisdom and purity in your thought life. See 2 Corinthians 10 verse 5. Inasmuch as we refute arguments and theories and reasonings and every proud and lofty thing that sets itself up against the true knowledge of God, that every proud and lofty thing is also every proud and lofty thought, word, deed, that sets itself up against the true knowledge of God, and we lead every thought and purpose away, captive, into the obedience of Christ the Messiah, the Anointed One. She often takes her own thoughts captive when they start to run away. Her long hair speaks of being set apart for her bridegroom, and the color now is purple, which of course represents royal authority. The bride knows that the source of the power of her commitment to him is himself. The father did undertake after all to ensure that his son is wed to a bride overflowing with love for him. John 17 I have made your name known to them, and I revealed your character and your very self, and I will continue to make you known, that the love which you have bestowed upon me may be in them, felt in their hearts and that I myself may be in them. This is Jesus talking to his Father. And he's telling his Father God, I have made your name, Father God, known to them, to the disciples. He is expecting you, his bride, to do the same. 
you must make Father God and His Son Jesus known to the people. You are responsible to reveal God's character and His very self to the people. And then He asks us to continue to make Him known. Why? So that the love which Father God have bestowed on Jesus may be in all the people you come in contact to. It must be felt in their hearts and that I myself may be in them. Jesus longs for you to help him to reach others. The daughters notice that the bridegroom is held captive by her tresses. This means that the more we desire to be devoted to him, the more we keep him captive to help us. Once I discovered how unfaithful I was to Jesus, I was so shocked and then discouraged about my unfaithfulness. And the enemy made sure that was all I could see. I took my dove eyes off of Jesus and I focused on myself. I kept repeating, Oh Lord, I am so unfaithful to you and you are so faithful. I was wallowing in a pit of discouragement when he said, My dear daughter, I have always known how unfaithful you are. You've only discovered it now. But your desire to remain faithful to me is what keeps me captive to ensure you will stay faithful to me. Again we see, we need God to love God. We need Jesus to keep us faithful to him, to keep us set apart for him. We can do nothing apart from him. If we try to, we will focus on our own performance. And that opens the door for the spirit of religion. Verse 6 How fair and how pleasant you are, O love, with your delights. This is the bridegroom joining in. All the time up to now, the daughters were describing what they see in the Shulamit. And he was standing in the shadows, listening to their report of his bride. But now he can't contain himself any longer, and he chips in into this conversation. He agrees with them when he says, How fair and how pleasant you are, O love with your delights. He enjoys her fruit. Remember, in chapters 116 and 2 verse 3, she enjoyed the bridegroom's fruit. Now... He enjoys her fruit. Yes, the fruit of Galatians 5.22. It's the same fruits and she is bearing them. He is so joyful because he sees his own perfection in her and it ravishes his heart. Verse 7, 8 and 9 goes together. This statue of yours is like a palm tree and your breasts like its clusters. I said, I will go up to the palm tree. I will take a hold of its branches. Let now your breasts be like clusters of the vine, and the fragrance of your breath like apples, and the roof of your mouth like the best wine. The bridegroom describes her full stature in Christ. He compares it with a palm tree, the national emblem of Israel. It has many uses. Let's look at Matthew 21, verse 8 and 9. Most of the crowd kept spreading their garments on the road 
and others kept cutting branches from the trees and scattering them on the road. And the crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed him kept shouting, Hosanna, O graciously inclined to the Son of David the Messiah, blessed, praised, and glorified is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, O be favorably disposed in the highest heaven. They were cutting branches from palm trees because palm trees is a sign of victory. That's in the New Testament. In Old Testament, Leviticus 23 verse 40, we read, And on the first day you shall take the fruit of pleasing trees and make booths of them, branches of palm trees and boughs of thick leafy trees and willows of the brook. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. You shall keep it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year, a statue forever throughout your generations. You shall keep it in the seventh month. This, of course, speaks of the Feast of Tabernacles. And in Revelation 7, verse 9, we read, After this I looked, and a vast host appeared, which no one could count, of every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. These stood before the throne and before the Lamb, and they were attired in white robes with palm branches in their hands. Why do they have palm branches? It's a sign of victory. They have overcome. That is the martyrs. They overcome Antichrist and the evil one by the word of their testimony, by the blood of the Lamb, and by laying down their lives. That's why they're waving the palm branches. And then in Psalm 92, we read more about the palm tree. A palm tree can withstand storms and droughts and still produce the sweetest dates. Its roots go deep underground. So it is with the bride. She has learned to suffer, but her roots just became stronger. She will stand any storm, any drought. And through all of this, she will produce the sweetest dates. May this be said of the bride after the corona lockdown. He calls her a living memorial, a trophy of his faithfulness. Let's read Psalm 92, 12 to 15. The uncompromisingly righteous bride shall flourish like a palm tree. She shall be long-lived, stately, upright, useful, and fruitful. You, beloved, his bride, his palm tree, you shall grow like a cedar in Lebanon. You'll be majestic and stable, durable and incorruptible. You are planted in the house of the Lord in his presence. You shall flourish in the courts of your God. And you will grow in grace every year. What a time to be growing in grace. A time as now. And you shall still bring forth fruit in your old age. Thank you, Lord. I take that for myself as well. And you shall still be full of sap, of spiritual vitality. And you will be rich in the verdure of trust, love, and contentment. No matter your circumstances, you will remain in contentment. This is not only for each one of us individually. Together we form the church. So the church must grow in this kind of stature in Christ 
and functioning in the fivefold ministry will help it grow into full maturity. Ephesians 4.13 That it, the church, might develop until we all, all churches, all ministries, all together, the brides of Christ, all over the world, until we all attain a oneness in the faith. Beloved, isn't that one of the fruits of the coronavirus? All over the world, there is a oneness in the faith, visible now. And in the comprehension of the full and accurate knowledge of the Son of God. What do we all agree on all over the world? We all agree when we sing, because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know he holds the future. This life is worth the living just because he lives. Who's the one that lives? It's the Son of God who died on the cross, rose after three days, poured out his spirit. We will soon be celebrating Pentecost and I think we will still be in the lockdown because it goes together with Passover. And we are seeing this all over the world. He is bringing us together in one faith, in a true comprehension of who the Son of God is. We are all really maturing into manhood, the completeness of the personality which is nothing less than the standard height of Christ's own perfection, the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ and the completeness found in Him. I believe this is what the Lord is doing in this time. He is bringing us together. He is putting us through this. He is allowing this so that we can mature into manhood and become one in the faith so that when He pours out His Spirit again in a new way and new refreshing is coming and we will know what to do and we will have a short lapse of time in which we must do what we must do and then He will come to fetch us. Doesn't that make you excited? We are supposed to comfort each other with these words. So I am comforting you tonight. Study Song of Songs. Live it in the short while we have. While he's going to pour out his spirit. And soon after that, he's coming for his bride. John 20, 20. So saying, he showed them his hands and his side. And when the disciples saw the Lord, they were filled with joy, delight, exultation and rapture. And Jesus said to them again, Peace to you, just as the Father has sent you, so I am sending you. Just as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. This is what we are busy with. The bridegroom describes her breast again. She has now reached spiritual maturity. So he goes much further in his description than the daughter's. By the way, you will see in other Bibles that some say in the whole chapter it's the daughters talking. They don't say it's him starting at verse 7. But if you study it intensely, you will see from verse 7 the descriptions becomes very intimate. In a way only he can know her. The daughters can't know her like that. That's why I changed this. They spoke up to verse 5, verse 6 he starts 
And as you look at the words and what he says, you can realize this only comes from being intimate with a king in the king's chamber. Especially when he talks about her breasts as clusters of dates and grapes. The daughters are accustomed to her breast being filled with milk. That's what she was feeding them up to now. But time is running out. The bridegroom sees much more potential. The dates which were cultivated during the storms and dry seasons. Are you producing dates now? Or are you still just have milk? Do you still just have milk? You should have both. The bridegroom is so carried away by this sight that he decides to climb the palm tree and to pluck some of these dates. Of course the daughters can't do this. It's him. The bride is the palm tree. So when he climbs the tree, he actually brings the manifestation of his presence over her. The bride often experiences this when the anointing of his presence comes into her and upon her. The anointing within usually rises up from the feet upwards and it fills you with the Holy Spirit until you want to burst inside and then because of the weight of his glory you cannot remain standing anymore just like the priests in the tabernacle and you gently fall over. It's also referred to as soaking in his presence and drinking deeply from his Holy Spirit. The minute the bridegroom takes a hold of the branches of his tree, he imparts strength to you. Beloved, take this tonight. You are his palm tree. He is climbing you. He is taking a hold of your branches. He is imparting strength to you. To that person, to that ministry, to that church. This power glorifies the Father. Because the aim of the bridegroom is that he and his bride will glorify his father together. How prophetic then to glorify Jesus with the waving of palm branches. The bride only need to wave her hands in worship and your bridegroom will see you waving palm branches. This totally overwhelms him and he will soak you in the manifestation of his presence within and without. It's my prayer that tonight as you go to sleep, you will experience this strengthening, this manifestation of his presence within and without. The bridegroom anoints her and commissions her again to go to the nations. Mark 16, verse 14 to 20. Afterwards, he appeared to the eleven, the apostles themselves, as they reclined at the table. And he reproved and reproached them for their unbelief, their lack of faith, and their hardness of heart, because they had refused to believe those who had seen him and looked at him attentively after he had risen from death. This was the disciples who did not believe Mary and Martha. When they told them, We saw him, he has risen, they wouldn't believe the two women. Verse 15, And he said to them, Go into all the world, preach and publish openly the good news to every creature of the whole human race. Not just some faiths, people with the same faith as you, to the whole human race. That's his commandment. And he who believes, who adjusts to, trust in and relies on the gospel in him, 
whom it says forth, He is baptized, and he will be saved from the penalty of eternal death. But he who does not believe that Jesus is the Son of God, who does not adhere to and trust in and rely on this gospel, will be condemned. Go preach the word and baptize them. And then, verse 17, These attesting signs will accompany those who believe. In my name you will drive our demons. You will speak in new languages. You will pick up serpents. And even if you drink anything deadly, it will not hurt you. Did you hear that? Even if you drink anything deadly, it will not hurt you. And you will lay hands on the sick, and they will get well. And so then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken this to them, was taken up into heaven, and he sat down at the right hand of God. And he's still there, waiting for us to do what he told them and us to do. And they obeyed, they went out, and they preached everywhere, while the Lord kept working with them and confirming the message by the attesting signs and miracles that closely accompany it. So, we have the promise of the Lord if we go and we preach and we lay on hands, the signs and the miracles will accompany our words and our acts. If you are still doubting, there's another verse, 1 Corinthians 1, 28. God selected, He deliberately chose you. He chose what in the world is low-born, insignificant, branded, and treated with contempt. Even the things, the people, that are nothing. Do you feel, Lord, I don't qualify for this scripture in Mark 16? I feel low-born and insignificant. Who's going to listen to me? I'm branded. People treat me with contempt. They think I'm nothing. That The enemy tells me, you're nothing. I grew up, I heard in my home all the time, you're nothing. You'll never uh, reach anything. The Lord says, I choose those. Why? That I might depose and bring to nothing the things that are, so that no mortal man should have pretense for glorying and boasting in the presence of God. If you know you have nothing to glory about or to boast about, about yourself, the Lord says, then you qualify. That's how he makes sure that no one will take his glory. And if people still do that, they are in trouble. How do we do that? How do we know that? Because this verse brings us to the value of the anointing. The anointing of the Holy Spirit is not cheap. Jesus paid very dearly for it. Many believers become power crazy. They just want more of the anointing. But for what purpose? The anointing, beloved, is only increased according to the strength of your character in Christ and according to the measure of your obedience to Him. The anointing is not meant for personal gain. And even though some may take advantage of it, and Jesus allows it, it breaks his heart. 
His anointing is meant to break the yokes of captivity, to heal and deliver the broken, as we read in Isaiah 10.27 and Isaiah 61.1. The anointing of the Holy Spirit is not meant to be displayed as some sort of special force or power. This type of behavior tempts man to take God's glory for himself. And in so doing, he aligns himself with Satan's permanent desire to be worshipped. Satan covets God's glory for himself and he's leading you into that trap to do the same. God is very serious about this. The bridegroom gives the bride three prophetic commissions. That's your commissioning tonight. There's three things he wants you to do. You must feed, disciple and mentor others. How do I do that? In the power of the Holy Spirit. There's no other way, beloved. Secondly, you must teach the others how to go with the flow of the Holy Spirit. To do that, you have to learn yourself how to go with the flow of the Holy Spirit. Song of Songs, a study of this book, teaches you, helps you, and imparts it into you. And number three, most important, you must maintain your own intimacy, your own vineyard. He says that her mouth and the roof of her mouth taste like the best wine. This is a reference to the kisses of her mouth of intimacy which tastes better than the wines of the world. She has after all been influenced by the anointing of the Holy Spirit. He tastes the wine inside her mouth. He says the roof of her mouth and he calls it the best wine. It is his wine, not only on her lips but inside of her. She is saturated with his wine. Beloved, I just watched a movie again before the wrath about the wedding at Cana. Uh, no, the chosen, the chosen. I watched that, the wedding at Cana. And I was wondering, could it be that Jesus also is saving the best wine for the last? For this time where we are in? That he's saving the best as what happened at the wedding at Cana, John 2, verse 1 to 12. Oh, beloved, take communion. It's a sign of his blood shed for you. His blood turned into wine for his bride, the best wine. The bridegroom says her breath smells like fresh apples. This is her vocabulary of encouragement, affirmation and healing. She did first receive this fragrance when he spoke those tender words to her and kissed her over and over with his word. She is now a vessel of refreshment every time she opens her mouth and her breath will release the Holy Spirit as is seen in John 20 verse 22. We see she is no longer shy or timid. She takes every compliment from him to heart. She continues with his metaphor that he said and she adds to it saying, Verse 9, yes, and the wine goes down smoothly for my beloved, moving gently the lips of sleepers. She knows if she stays close to him and receives his kisses and the wine on her lips, when she speaks, she will awaken those who have a slumbering spirit, the sleepers. 
The wine speaks of the effect of the Holy Spirit on her spirit. It's in her lifestyle. It's in her prayer life. Ephesians 5, 14 to 18. Therefore he says, Awake, O sleeper, arise from the dead. That's not physical death. It's a spiritual death, a slumbering sleep. Arise, O sleeper, and Christ shall shine and make his day upon you and give you light. Look carefully then how you walk. Live purposefully and worthily and accurately, not as the unwise and the witless, but as wise, sensible, intelligent people, making the very most of the time, buying up each opportunity, because the days are evil. So, beloved, do not be vague and thoughtless and foolish, but be understanding, firmly grasping what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, the wine of the world, for that is debauchery. But be ever filled and stimulated with the Holy Spirit. That's where we should be by now. The bride is, she's quick to respond to his prompting, simply because she loves him, and her only aim is to glorify him through her obedience. Her words shake those who are spiritually asleep, and not all will be happy to be awakened. She's sensitive to the Holy Spirit, to his leading of when to speak and what to say. She's learned to wait for the right moment, and she hears Holy Spirit telling her, this is the moment, and then she speaks, and he fills her mouth in what to say. She always speaks words of life where there's death, and she encourages others and she always glorifies God. This inspires others to also come to know him better, as happened with the daughters. Verse 10 is a crucial verse. She says, I am my beloved's and his desire is towards me. See how she's grown. In the beginning, chapter 2, verse 16, she said, My beloved is mine, 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 and I am his. She was satisfied just with the knowledge that he's mine. So many Christians stop there. As long as I know it's my God and my Jesus and he's mine. But we've learned through Song of Songs. He says, yes, I am yours, beloved. But I want you to know how important it is to me that you would know that you are mine. So in chapter 6, we heard her say, I am my beloved's and he is mine. She changed the order of the words. She was growing. But now, she doesn't even say he's mine. She just says, I'm my beloved. And his desire, and I've added an ever, so add an ever. His desire is ever towards me. Especially when you fail the test and you feel so miserable. And the enemy is there to come and judge you and tell you, yeah, you're this bride of Christ and look how you've fallen then you tell him to go in Jesus name shut up you have nothing to say about my walk with God I am my beloved and his desire is ever towards me this testimony is phenomenal she has loved God for such a long time but she's only now beginning to understand how much he loves and enjoys her Beloved, is that you? Have you been loving God for a long time? 
I pray that now after this study of Song of Songs, you will also understand how much He loves you and enjoys you. For that is the greatest revelation you could ever receive. It will always help you overcome your barriers of doubt. It will become the driving force of your life, the fact that He loves me and His desire is ever towards me. You can compare the bride with Enoch's experience in Hebrews 11.5. Because of faith, Enoch was caught up and transferred to heaven, so he did not have a glimpse of death, and he was not found, because God had translated him. For even before he was taken to heaven, he received testimony, still on record, that he had pleased and been satisfactory to God. Oh, I love this verse. I read it over and over and I underline these words. He was caught up. If you don't understand caught up, okay, he was transferred to heaven. If you don't understand that, okay, God translated him. Three times the writer of Hebrews wants us to realize this is what rapture means. We will be raptured. We will be caught up. We will be translated we will be transferred to heaven. And even so, his testimony is still on record. Where? In Genesis 5, 21 to 24. So all the days of Enoch were 365 years. And Enoch walked in habitual fellowship with God, and he was not, for God took him. I see so many teachings from Christians People who say, I used to believe in the rapture, but now I believe it's wrong. And they give you very difficult expositions of why the rapture is wrong and that there's no such thing. And they all jump to Jesus' appearance uh, when he returns, his open return, his glorious return. And they miss the secret catching away of the bride when he only appears. I don't know how the enemy get these people on this deception. Twice now in this time since the podcast, I've received uh, very tactfully either a WhatsApp or somebody sending me something to read and it's all about the rapture is not true. What do you do with Hebrews 11.5, Genesis 5.24, 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 Thessalonians 5? What do you do with Noah that was put in the ark? The Lord took him away from the destruction, the wrath of God. What do you do with Lot and his family who was taken out of Sodom and Gomorrah before it was destroyed? The word is full of testimonies. And what about Jesus himself? He was caught up. He was transferred. He was translated. He ascended. We will ascend. Oh, please, don't get into this deception. Our hope is the rapture, and that's what keeps us going. That's what's our hope and our comfort, and that's what makes us keep on. Without that hope, we have to face everything that's coming. God says in 1 Thessalonians 5, I did not choose you to condemn you. So, the bride is like Enoch. And it was on accord of these two verses that the Lord told me to start a new book on the life of Enoch. 
and my group who walk, walked with me until I got sick. Then we had to stop and we missed it for six months. We just started again on Enoch and then came the lockdown. And sometimes I wonder if I will be finished with a book on Enoch before the rapture. And if not, then it's also okay because the process has even deepened my intimacy on another level than what Song of Songs did. So identify with Enoch, bride, please. God himself declared his joy and his satisfaction over Enoch's life with him. God took him. He was in habitual fellowship with God. That's what you are doing when you are attending your vineyard every day. And then one day you will not be, for God took you home with him. May we see each other there. He's saying the same to you. Beloved, I just want to add something here that I forgot and I believe it's very important. Yes, thank you Holy Spirit for reminding me. Still on page 105 with Enoch, beloved. The way God felt about Enoch. He's telling you tonight, I feel the same about you, my beloved. And I want you to say this about you, my friend. So beloved, as we did before, put your name in this space and declare. I'm going to use my own name, you use yours. And Poppy walked with God and she was not because God took her. And this of course refers to the rapture. I felt like I went to a next level when I wrote this down today. So I know you will experience the same thing the moment you put it in writing and you see it. And you pronounce it loudly with your own name. You walked with God and you was not because God took you. Lastly, this powerful scripture, I am my beloved's and his desires ever towards me, is an excellent weapon of truth against the enemy's constant accusations. The bride and I and you, we do not care anymore what others think of our passion for the bridegroom. Are you there? Why don't we care what others think? Because we know our foundation is set in him. The bride asks herself, what is his greatest desire? The answer, you. He desires and enjoys you. You please him. You gladden his heart when you trust him and believe that he loves you. Consequently, you must learn to love and accept yourself as well, Bride of Christ. So declare this over yourself. I am his precious and prized possession. I'm the object of his affection. Jesus sings over me and dances with me. His blessings is upon my life. I believe it because he says so and he's not a man that he should lie. As we live and say these things and walk with him, our heart of stone is melted by his love and you will begin to feel his heartbeat. Your heart becomes joined to his. There is also a physical manifestation of this 
For a long time I would wake up at night and I could hear a very loud heartbeat and I didn't know what it was until he showed me this is my heart. Especially when we traveled so much he would say this is my heart for Nelspreit, for East London, for Pretoria and there was a different beat for every city we went to. I hadn't heard that for a long time. Oh Jesus, please, I'd love to feel your heart beat again. Verse 11, there's something changing. All the time he was the one saying, Come my beloved, come, let's do this, let's do that. Now she says, Come my beloved. Four times, let us, let us go forth to the field, let us lodge in the villages, let us go up early to the vineyards, let us see if the vine has budded, whether the grape blossoms are open and the pomegranates are in bloom. And there, my beloved, I will work for you. No, that's not the text. And there, I will give you my love. The bride has become so mature in Christ, she's become fearless. She does not fear losing him anymore. You can't lose him. And neither does she fear the watchman of the city. She no longer has a desire to hide. She has become one with him and is no longer able to find herself separate from him. She is hidden with Christ in God. What a place to be. Free of yourself and secure in the knowledge that you are in him as he is in you. John seventeen twenty one. The bridegroom from chapters 1 to 6 has been calling her, saying, Come, but now it swings around. She's calling him. She is the bride of Revelation 22, verse 17. The Holy Spirit and the bride, the church, the true Christians say, Come. And let him who is listening say, Come. And she says, Come, Lord Jesus, come. She remembers his promise to come and that he will climb the palm tree and to let the manifestation of his anointing cover her. This is what happened. This is what she is asking for again. Cry out, come Lord Jesus, come. Keep it on every day when you wake up, when you go to sleep. Remember, Pentecost is around the corner. Then she invites him to the field and the villages, there where the people are. She asks to inspect the vineyards for signs of growth. This is in contrast to a neglected vineyard in chapter 1 and her self-centered obsession with her own vineyard in chapter 2. She now focuses on the vineyards of her bridegroom. The work in her own vineyard was done for him and now his work becomes her work as well. There's a change of emphasis from my work for the Lord to... I become a co-worker with Christ. She has also learned she cannot work or do anything alone. She's like Moses, asking for his presence to go with her. Otherwise, she will not succeed. John 15:5. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever lives in me and I in him bears much abundant fruit. Remember, chapter 4, he comes to the garden as the gardener. However, apart from me, cut off from vital union with me, from intimacy with me, you can do nothing. She offers her love to him in the field, the workplaces and remote places. She's aware of the great harvest 
and she reaps every opportunity he grants. She has learned that involvement in tough service for the kingdom while you are but a young believer is not very wise. It does not increase the young believer's love for God. Instead, it often results in separation from God because of performance orientation. The young believer falls for the lie that says the harder you work for the Lord, the more he loves you. And you grasp the misconception that your works also prove your love for him. I fell into that because of my background. He had to teach me. The truth is that the bridegroom says, My love, I desire you. I desire you more than your works. The bride is now mature in her love for him. She found her balance. It's not the world's standard of balance. It's a balance between her intimacy with Jesus, that's your quiet times alone in the garden with him, and working with him to help gather in the harvest. It's fun to be his co-worker. Together you chase the little foxes. Together you remember. She remembers how upset she was when they were still there in her first phases of growth. She delights in the growth of every new believer and she reaffirmed God's faithfulness to them. She speaks from experience. She speaks of him both in season and out of season to Timothy 4 verse 2. Herald and preach the word. Keep your sense of urgency. Stand by. Be at hand. Be ready. Whether the opportunity seems to be favorable or unfavorable. Whether it's convenient or inconvenient. Whether it's welcomed or unwelcome. You, beloved, as a preacher of the word, you are to show the people in what way their lives are wrong. And you have to convince them, rebuke them, correct them, warn them, urge them and encourage them. Being unflagging and inexhaustible in your patience and in your teaching. Teach them the verse in Micah 7 verse 8 which says, Rejoice not against me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall arise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord shall be a light to me. To teach this with impartation, you had to experience it. You fell. You were weak. And the enemy rejoices about that. That's when you have to speak up and say, When I fall, I shall arise. So do not rejoice against me, O my enemy. Even if I sit in darkness, the Lord shall be a light to me. She experienced this, therefore she can quote it with authority. Last verse, verse 13, she says, the mandrakes give of a fragrance, and at our gates are pleasant fruits, all manner, new and old, which I have laid up for you, my beloved. The mandrake represents the intimate relationship between the bride and her bridegroom. The purple flowers, purple for authority, have a lovely fragrance. It's a fulfillment of Jesus' promise in chapter 2 verse 12, that winter has passed and the spring has begun. The bride has been given authority to do what he has called her. The fruits refer to the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Remember the fruits that he grew in her. 
In chapter 2 verse 3 was the fruit that nourished her. Now she is the fruit in which he delights. The gates represents the territory over which she has been given authority in him. And there she is laid up fruit for him, right at the entrance of the garden, ready to eat. She wants to work in the gardens with him, but she knows it's important that he must first eat of her fruit. That would be the old fruit that he grew himself as well as the fruit that are still coming forth as she maintains and grows in a relationship with Christ. Matthew 13 verse 52 Jesus said to them, Therefore every teacher and interpreter of the sacred writings who has been instructed about and trained for the kingdom of heaven and has become a disciple is like a householder who brings forth out of his storehouse treasure that is new and treasure that is old, the fresh as well as the familiar. You see, in your walk with God, you have certain scriptures and promises that you have been praying for many, many years. Those are your old fruits. But then as you continue in intimacy, you will always have some new fruit as well. She lays it up at the gate because in Isaiah 53 verse 26 he says, Put me in remembrance, remind me of your merits, let us plead and argue together, set forth your case that you may be justified, proved right. When the Lord says put me in remembrance, he said it when he did the communion, he asked them that. Now he's asking you, to bring your scriptures, especially the old ones and the new ones, and put it at the gate so when I enter I will see it and eat it. Why is he asking her to do this? Is he a forgetful God? No. Do we forget? For sure. So he wants you to remind him of the scriptures he gave you so that you can remember. It happens to us all, beloved. You pray and pray and you stand on this promise of the Lord and it doesn't come through. And Proverbs says, hope defers, makes the heart grow sick. And you stop praying those scriptures because you think, maybe I heard wrong. Maybe it's not for me. He says, dig them up again and quote them to me. Give them all your old fruits that you have forgotten about. I want you to remind me because I want to remind you. My word will go into fulfillment. In summary, everything the bride has done, all the work, all the suffering, pain and the fruit, it all originates in bridal love. When we are stripped of everything, even from our good intentions, we will remember only one thing, love, bridal love for the Son of God, for he alone can continually guard you, purify you, and fill your heart with his unconditional love. And his spirit alone will enable you to endure to the end. So we will say, come, Lord Jesus, come. Come, 
Holy Spirit, come. I'm coming, Abba Father. I am coming. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let us do the statements of the blood. The blood of Jesus has redeemed me from the hand of Satan. The blood of Jesus has redeemed me from every curse. Every time I read the second one, I see curses falling off people. Like if every time there's some more, he doesn't do it all at once, we will die. It, I, I see it's like, it's like scales. I just see scales dropping, scales from the eyes, scales from the brain stem, your place of memory, and a lot, lot of scales from the back. The blood of Jesus has redeemed you from every curse. In Christ Jesus, you are free from every curse and blessed with all blessings. You shall be blessed in your place and your affairs shall be blessed. You shall be blessed at your work and the fruits of your labor shall be blessed. You shall be blessed when you come in and you shall be blessed when you go out. The Lord will cause your enemies to rise up against you to be defeated before your face. They will come at you from one direction, but they will flee from you in seven. The Lord will send a blessing on your bonds and on everything you put your hand to. And the Lord your God will bless you in the land he is giving you. The Lord will establish you as his holy people. And all the people on earth will see that you are called by the name of the Lord, and they will fear you. The Lord will grant you abundant prosperity. He will open the heavens, the storehouse of his bounty, to send rain on your land in season, and to bless all the work of your hands. So you will lend to many nations, but will borrow from none. The Lord will make you the head, not the tail. And you will always be at the top. Why? Because you are your beloved's and his desire is ever towards you. Therefore you will never be at the bottom. The blood of Jesus has sealed an eternal covenant for you. Oh, the blood of Jesus. Precious blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus has reconciled you to and granted you peace with God your Father. Peace with all people and peace with all creation. The blood of Jesus has granted you forgiveness of all your sins, and the blood of Jesus, the Son of God, have cleansed you from all your sin, and the blood of Jesus justified you from all condemnation, so all the accusations of the enemy against you are nullified. Jesus makes you righteous as though you have never sinned. The blood of Jesus sanctifies you and consecrates you, so you become belonging to your Lord, for you are His, you are dedicated to Him, and He has set you apart for Him, for His ministry. The blood of Jesus cleanses your conscience from acts that lead to death, so that you may serve the living God. The blood of Jesus makes you enter the most holy place, the king's chamber, to serve the holy God. The blood of Jesus grants you victory over Satan and all his principalities. 
Satan, the blood of Jesus is against you in Jesus' name. The blood of Jesus is the reason for your everlasting rejoicing. Hallelujah. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for what you said to us tonight. We have an expectancy in our spirit, Lord, for Pentecost. We know you fill us daily, but we have an expectancy for something new, something special. Tomorrow's day 40 of the lockdown. After 40 days, we come out of the wilderness filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we want to thank you for this time of lockdown and that it will last as long as it needs to last. We cover our country with the blood of Jesus. Thank you, Lord, that the body of Christ is rising up all over the world. We thank you that even we are locked down, we still can worship you. We do not need a place or many people or many fancy technology. We can just open our mouths and talk to you and we have a spiritual revival, a personal revival. Thank you, Lord, that in this time every bride is busy in their own vineyard. And I see and I wait for the time when we will get together again and we will all come together filled from the power of the Holy Spirit, filled from all the intimacy we each had individually. And when that comes together, what a power and authority in Christ Jesus that will be. Take your glory, Lord. We are yours. In Jesus' name. Amen. I saw the, the door of the temple opening and I saw the, the frankincense. It was very heavy. Uh, clouds of smoke, clouds of smoke, clouds of smoke. And I believe it's the prayers of all the saints reaching God's throne. Thank you, Lord, that you accept our prayers, that it has been purified through frankincense, which the angels added to our prayers, no matter how uh, we struggle to pray and say the right words or enemy tells us we can't really pray we must leave it to other people and we learned in song of songs you love to hear our voices so lord i pray that the bride will start to use her her vocal cords sing to you and pray to you aloud so the enemy can hear it and they can hear that themselves it builds you and strengthens your faith and god loves to hear your voice and now even uh, if there's words wrong, as I speak, I make mistakes often. I saw the frankincense mingled in with the wrong pronunciation or wrong tenses or wrong vocabulary because you see our hearts. And I see there's a lot of frankincense to purify every broken prayer and to make it something glorious acceptable to the Lord. Amen. Amen. 